From 2015, the Open Philanthropy Project began making a series of large grants to primarily U.S.-based animal welfare organizations, with the goal of securing corporate pledges to move layer hens from caged into cage-free accommodation. A major part of Openfill's stated motivation for making these grants was their belief that cage-free accommodation provides much better welfare、uh, for factory farm chickens, primarily due to their ability to move around、uh, and express a variety of important natural behaviours. From early on, however, these grants came in for substantial criticism from various、uh, animal welfare organisations, most prominently Direct Action Everywhere, who claimed that, in fact, The welfare of chickens in cage-free accommodation was even worse、uh, than it was in battery cages, and they base these claims on evidence that chickens in cage-free accommodation experience higher levels of violence and injury from other chickens, as well as worse performance on various other welfare indicators such as air quality.、Uh, on the basis of these criticisms, OpenPhil performed a more in-depth investigation into the relative welfare merits of cage and cage-free accommodation. Uh, which concluded that while on balance cage-free accommodation still seems to be better,、uh, they were much less certain about this than they were originally. And this controversy illustrates a general problem that has plagued the wild animal movement since its inception, which is that acquiring a overall measure of the welfare state of a non-human animal is extremely difficult. In this case. It seems like we have some plausibly important welfare indicators, such as the level of violence or air quality,、uh, which militate in favour of battery cages, while other important-seeming indicators, such as the ability to move around, strongly favour cage-free accommodation. And there's no obvious、uh, objective way to weight these different factors and integrate them all together into a single, all things considered, measure of chicken welfare. This is a very serious problem because if we can't measure animal welfare effectively, We can't improve it effectively because we can't identify which interventions、uh, will have the largest positive impact on animal welfare. The ideal welfare measure would be cumulative, meaning it measures an animal's total welfare experience over its life rather than just its current state at the point of measurement. It would be objective and measurable, and not simply dependent on the subjective impression of a few humans. It would be comprehensive. By which I mean, it would take into account all or almost all welfare-relevant factors, while not being unduly affected by non-welfare-affecting、uh, factors in the animal's life. And it would be transferable across species, meaning that a technique developed in one species could be adapted for use in another species without excessive costs in terms of time and money. Unfortunately, no existing method we have for measuring animal welfare comes anywhere close to approaching this ideal. Currently, most methods for measuring animal welfare in the welfare sciences either rely on one or a small number of simple proxy indicators, such as stress hormone levels, body condition, or the presence or absence of certain behaviours, or on an overall clinical impression by a veterinarian who will measure various factors and return their overall subjective impression of an animal's welfare state. And both of these methods have serious problems. The first、uh, approach is not at all comprehensive. All of the proxy measures we have are widely acknowledged to give very partial measures of animal welfare.、Uh, while the second clinical impression approach is completely non-standardized, gives drastically different results if you get different people to do the clinical impression,、uh, and is highly vulnerable to well-known issues like anthropomorphic bias. And this means we are extremely limited in our ability to actually assess the welfare experience of animals.
Unfortunately, we think we can do better. Over the last few years, an increasing amount of evidence has emerged suggesting that the biological age of a non-human animal is a surprisingly promising way of measuring its overall cumulative uh, state. This, uh, I think, is surprising because there's no, on the face of it, there's no obvious connection between aging and welfare. Uh, but over the course of this talk, I will try and convince you that we have both good theoretical justification and good empirical data to suggest that this is the case. So what is uh, biological aging? Over the course of an animal's life, it will accumulate various forms of damage and dysregulation uh, that will impair its functionality and increase its risk of mortality over time. Uh, this pattern is very clear in the human data, for example here from the UK, but a similar phenomenon is observable in many, many different non-human animals. Importantly, uh, while these health effects are strongly correlated with chronological age, they are not the same thing as chronological age. Uh, and in fact, individuals of the same age often vary substantially in their levels of age-related damage and dysregulation. Uh, and it's my claim here that measures of this damage and dysregulation, which often perform much better than measures of chronological age uh, in estimating the health and mortality outcomes of individuals, also serve as surprisingly good measures of cumulative animal welfare. So why might this be the case? To answer this question, we need to go back to the evolutionary roots of pleasure and suffering in the animal kingdom. Evolutionarily, both positive and negative welfare states are widely believed to serve as behavioral reinforcers, meaning that they incentivize animals to seek out conditions that are good uh, for their reproductive fitness and avoid conditions that impair their reproductive fitness. A very common and general way that a stimulus can impair an animal's fitness is by damaging its body, reducing its functionality and its ability to survive and reproduce in the future. And this means that damaging stimuli of many different kinds should be expected to evolve to become aversive, that is to lower the welfare of animals through pain or other mechanisms. At the same time, since aging is an accumulation of damage, Damaging stimuli should contribute to this accumulation and so accelerate the biological aging of individual animals. And hence, we can expect a general correlation between the effect of a stimulus on the welfare of an animal and, and its effect on that animal's um, biological age. This is a very general theoretical argument uh, that applies to many different species of animal and many different kinds of stimulus. And the generality of these arguments is what makes uh, aging-based methods so promising because they suggest it may give us an, a particularly good way of accessing the all-things-considered well, cumulative welfare state of an animal. In addition to this theoretical argument, uh, a substantial amount of empirical evidence has been accumulated over the last 10 or so years, um, suggesting that there is indeed a link between the welfare of both humans and non-human animals and their rate of biological aging. On the left here, I've listed several experimental interventions which would seem to uh, reduce the welfare of non-human animals and which have been found to accelerate their rate of biological age. For example, sleep deprivation in mice uh, or noise pollution in swallows. On the right, uh, I'm showing a subset of the many uh, welfare-affecting factors that are correlated with changes in biological aging in humans. For example, childhood trauma and chronic pain and reported stress uh, are well known to associate with faster biological aging, while positive uh, lifestyle factors like exercise and diet, which are good for human welfare, also correlate with slower biological aging. 
Importantly, unlike the animal data on the left, this human data is correlative. Um, so we have to be careful about our inference of causality here. But nevertheless, the overall state of the field appears to be that there is a good correlation with many different welfare-affecting factors and the rate of biological aging. These are the metrics by which I previously wanted to evaluate a welfare measure uh, and identify ideal welfare measures. Uh, so how do aging metrics uh, fare on this scale? Firstly, biological aging is clearly cumulative. Aging is something that accumulates progressively over time, and changes in welfare on this theory should accelerate or decelerate this approach. So when you measure the biological age of an animal at any given time, you're getting a readout of its entire welfare history. They're also objective. Many of these measures have been used for decades in the biological of aging literature and have well-established biological interpretations. The theoretical argument underlying the use of aging metrics as welfare measures suggests that these should be very comprehensive and the diversity of empirical factors that have been found to affect biological aging rates also suggests that these may well be more comprehensive than other measures, although I would say more research is needed here. And again, the generality of aging and the fact that very similar aging phenotypes occur across so many different species suggests that these metrics should also be unusually transferable. And so overall, while more research is certainly needed, these, uh, these aging-based metrics seem to come surprisingly close to an ideal welfare measure compared to the other measures we have in the field. So how would these aging-based measures of cumulative welfare cash out in attacking a genuine uncertainty in the animal welfare movement? To address this, I'm going to return to our caged and cage-free chickens. Um, let's say we wanted to actually work out which of these produced better all things considered cumulative welfare. One way of approaching this would be to take samples from individuals of many different chronological ages in both populations uh, and then use these to work out the rate of biological age as a function of chronological age in both populations. If we saw a difference, we could then infer that the population that is aging more slowly has better welfare than the population that is aging more rapidly. This is a very general experimental protocol that could be adapted quite easily to many different species and many different uncertainties and controversies in the wild animal welfare movement. Overall, therefore, I'm quite optimistic about the use of these methods uh, in addressing issues of animal welfare in farms and in the laboratory, um, and where I think they are often much more promising than many of the other methods we currently use to measure animal welfare. And so I think this is something that both researchers and funders should be aware of and looking to investigate further. But I'm a researcher at the Wild Animal Initiative, so how do these methods uh, relate to our attempts to measure and improve animal welfare in the wild? One of the things that makes wild animal welfare such a difficult cause area is the sheer diversity of animals we care about. Whereas um, in captivity, the vast majority of individuals of concern come from a few tens of species of animals, in the wild we have a vast number of different species that we care about, many of which are extremely different in their biology and presumably have very different welfare needs. And this means that an objective, comprehensive, and especially transferable measure of welfare is particularly important in this context. And hence, even though there are some caveats that make applying these methods more difficult in the wild than they are in the laboratory, uh, at Wild Animal Initiative, we're particularly optimistic about the use of these methods to address animal welfare in the wild. 
To that end, we're currently in the process of designing a study which will attempt to use aging-based measures to achieve the first comprehensive mapping of the welfare landscape of a species in the wild. To do that, we will take populations of the same species in many different uh, environments uh, and measure their rate of biological aging alongside many different factors that, would, that are plausibly relevant for their welfare, such as food availability, climate, shelter, human effects on their environment, predation, and as many other factors as we can get our hands on. It's our hope that this study, which is currently in active development, uh, will contribute significantly um, to our knowledge about the applicability of aging-based welfare measures in, in a wild context, increase the prominence uh, of these issues of wild animal welfare in the academic literature, and most importantly, start to give us good information about what wild animals need to improve their welfare and how we can help them. Thank you. Uh, can you get more into the technical details of uh, how um, how uh, these how this process works and how does it how does it compare to say uh, measuring stress levels through checking cortisol levels? So there are a lot of different ways you can measure biological aging, ranging from extremely simple to very complicated and expensive. Uh, the simplest and most widely used metric, which is the one most of the evidence I presented in my presentation comes from, is measuring telomere length. Uh, telomeres are repetitive DNA sequences on the end of chromosomes, which protect the chromosome from damage as the, as the DNA gets shorter. Uh, and the length of these telomeres decreases over the course of life. Um, there are, there's quite a lot of evidence suggesting that stress and other metrics accelerates the rate of telomere shortening. Um, and... Uh, that is what most of the evidence I presented here is based on. Uh, you can also use other things like transcripto, uh, transcriptome profiling, epigenetic work. Um, you can basically get arbitrarily uh, complicated and expensive with your methods here. Uh, obviously, in animal welfare, we want things that are relatively affordable. Um, and that probably means we'll mostly be looking at telomeres or clinical markers of biological aging, so like uh, more functional, out functional readouts. Awesome. Um, um, I, I guess one thing I'm thinking about when I uh, when I think about this question is: um, uh, are, are these type of methods limited by um, limited by only capturing things uh, that uh, leave some permanent biological input? So some things may be hedonistically or preferentially relevant in the moment, but may not leave a lasting impression. Is that a, a concern in this space? So it's possible, and it's also basically impossible to check whether this is in fact the case, because we don't have any method. If we had a method we can compare this to, we wouldn't need, uh, mm. we need this method. Um, I think the theoretical arguments suggests that anything that is damaging in some way should leave a mark on the rate of biological aging. Um, when it comes to social stimuli, so social stresses, the argument is a bit more complicated, but it does in fact look like social factors also tend to accelerate the rate of biological aging, so that, uh, that potential exception doesn't in fact appear to be an exception. Um, it's always possible that there are classes of negative stimuli that uh, have evolved to be aversive for reasons that don't have anything to do with biological age. So I'm certainly not claiming the correlation is perfect. Um, but I think it's probably overall, the correlation between the two is probably good enough for this to be better than any other alternatives. Uh, it may well be the case that we want to use this alongside existing measures of animal welfare um, and, so to, and try and integrate them together. 
Um, and it's always possible that any given method will be missing something. I also think it's the case that any given specific method for measuring biological aging is likely to be missing certain things, which is why I tend to favor a sort of multi uh, multifactorial approach when the funding is available. You know, take several cheap markers and integrate them together uh, rather than just relying on one particular measure that might not be very comprehensive. Great. Um, I think uh, one thing you've kind of hinted at there is this is all about a lot of voice tr tracking uh, aversive stimuli. Uh, so what about the alternate approach? So if you're trying to measure the how how overall uh, positive or negative uh, animal's life is, um, uh, will, I guess will such an approach do a good job of capturing positive experiences? Uh, yes, so the, the same argument applies to positive experiences. If an experience is positive because it protects the animal against damage, or even in some cases un like removes damage, then you would expect to see the, the correlation apply in that case as well. So uh, as I said before, in humans, better diets, more exercise, uh, better social situations, um, lower levels of reported stress, um, various positive lifestyle uh, factors are correlated with slower biological aging. Um, and you would expect to see the same thing in the wild, I think. That said, I wouldn't be too surprised if the link was weaker in the positive case. Uh, because it seems like a lot of the reasons things are likely to be positive are because, are because it increases your reproductive fitness or it's otherwise good in a way that doesn't relate to damage. Um, so yes, uh, it does still apply, but I'm not confident that the link is as robust. Cool. Um, uh, I guess another uh, stepping away from the practicalities of doing this, um, at theoretical level, um, are there ethical systems under which, uh, uh, this type of tracking is more promising than others. Or is just uh, particularly promising to certain philosophical uh, uh, modes of thinking about this problem. Sure. So I think a lot of the the work in this space, including mine, sort of implicitly assumes a sort of total classical utilitarian approach, where you just sort of take the integral under the welfare curve. Um, because I think most of what we're measuring will be the presence or absence of damage, I think that it's um, still pretty promising from a negativist approach. Um, so if you're mainly worried about suffering, I think this uh, method is still probably better than anything else that we have right now, um, even if it isn't sort of as ideal as it is from a classical approach. Um, the one system or, or class of systems that I think really str will struggle with this is more prioritarian approaches where you're concerned about, where you're specifically concerned with the biggest or most severe um, events of suffering. Uh, because there, while those will still contribute more to aging than minor uh, insults, um, it may not, you know, it is at best going to weight them linearly with the rest of the cumulative experience and might in fact underweight them relative to sort of weaker but more uh, persistent insults. And so I think if you're very strongly prioritarian and you're mainly concerned with the worst things that happen during an animal's life, uh, then you might be much more skeptical about these methods. Related to that is the fact that because these things are measuring like a progressive accumulation of aging, they're not very useful for measuring the badness of death. So if you have a very bad death and this like dominates your, the, the subjective experience of your life, uh, your, you, we can't really then check your aging after you've died, uh, cause you're not aging anymore. Um, so I think that's a severe weakness. On the other hand, that's a weakness that I think applies to basically every single welfare metric I know of. So, um, I think when it comes to the badness of death, we're pretty, um, we're pretty restricted to sub like our subjective impressions. 
Cool. Um, head over to Kirne. So there's one question from the audience, um, and this is for Will. Has telomere length been measured for chickens in different types of farming? As far as I know, no. There is some um, uh, telomere work in chickens. So I think I one of the um, empirical examples I presented there is from chickens. Uh, and if you look at the sources um, for my written version of this, you will find some evidence on telomere length in chickens. As far as I know, no one has done the experiment I suggested there. Um, so this, this whole idea of using telomeres or any other aging-based uh, measure explicitly for welfare is very new. Um, there's very little literature in this space so far. Uh, and so there's a lot of fairly obvious and simple experiments that haven't been done. I guess you could also run into issues here with actually getting cooperation from the farmers. I don't actually, since I, I haven't, um, I don't have any experience in this space, I don't know how easy it is to just come in and say, let me, let me try and measure the welfare of your farm, of your animals. Um, so that might be a problem as well. Yeah, great. Okay, and we had another question come in. Um, well, you said that this indicator has been known in science for a while, and somebody is wondering why has it not really been used so far? Um, so it's, an, it's, a known, um, it's a known way of predicting health outcomes. So it has been used in humans uh, for things like um, you know, trying to predict uh, rates of mortality from different kinds of diseases or trying to um, correlate different things with the rate of aging. It just hasn't been explicitly linked to animal welfare. Um, it has been sort of implicitly linked to human welfare for some time. So um, Elizabeth Blackburn's work um, in telomeres quite famously has shown that, you know, uh, people with more childhood trauma have shorter telomeres. People involved in violence have shorter telomeres. Uh, people with bad diets have shorter telomeres and so on. Um, so there's this sort of like informal connection between telomere length and human welfare that's been around for a few decades. Um, but actually the idea, I mean, not very many people are interested in animal welfare. Not very many people do research on telomeres uh, or do research on the biology of aging. The intersection of the two is, is very new. There's really only one or two people I know in academia working on this at the moment, and um, they've only started doing it fairly recently. Great. Thank you. Um, so I think we have time for one more question, uh, which is, can you actually measure the telomeres in chickens um, given that they are slaughtered so young? That is a very good question. Uh, and that relates to the general issue of using these methods on juveniles. Um, it depends. In the case of layer hens, if you're worried about slaughtering so young, I suspect the questioner is mainly asking about male chickens. And there's this idea that perhaps the bulk of the suffering that arises from hen egg farming is actually from the male chicks that are, are slaughtered so quickly. And in that case, I agree with the implied question that that's probably not that useful in that case. So if an animal is born and then dies and we can't measure the badness of death and they don't have much else going on in their lives, then this method doesn't, doesn't have much to tell us. Equally, nor does any other method that I know of. Um, for animals that live longer as juveniles, uh, I think this is somewhat more useful. So when you, if you're actually tackling the, um, the welfare of uh, layer hens, who do have substantially longer lives, or broiler chickens who also live uh, much longer than uh, a few days, then I think this is quite useful. Great. Okay, one more to wrap up. I think mm. this is a really great question. Um, which organizations do you envision conducting these hypothetical chicken studies, and how might one support this work? It's an excellent question. Um, so we're mostly involved in setting up this wild animal study, of course. Um, I think... 
you would need, so at least for now, our main approach is to find and cooperate with academic collaborators and then try and find funding from EA uh, funders or other funders to support that work. I think the same model could probably work in a farmed animal context um, where you find a, an academic who's interested in working on this and then get them funding or that they wouldn't have had access to otherwise. Um, I don't actually know of any, maybe Marcus knows of any EA organization that actually has the capacity to perform these kinds of experiments. Um, if not, then we're either restricted to working with academics or with um, other animal welfare organizations. So um, currently my main model is that we should get uh, more academics involved and try and work with them and provide funding for them to do work that we find promising. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. This was a really excellent session. Um, so Will is going to have office hours from 3 to 3.30 mm -hmm. in Porter Tun, and you can follow up with further questions there. Thank you both so much.